The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you to Berean Bible Church this morning. I think you're all aware this Thursday our nation... Well, let me say, most of our nation will celebrate Thanksgiving. Some of them aren't allowed to because of their governors, our tyrannical governors, and they're telling them how many people they can have at their house, and they got little spies out, I guess. So just close your blinds, you know, when you eat, so no one can look in your house and see how many people you have in there. But I like Thanksgiving because it's the least commercialized of all our national holidays. You know, the stores, they cash in on Halloween and Christmas and Valentine's Day and Easter. But there's not much of a Thanksgiving windfall for retailers. I'm sure the grocery stores get to sell a lot of stuff. But other than that, you know, and as a result, we really don't suffer from a Thanksgiving overkill, so to speak. We're not expected to buy Thanksgiving candy or Thanksgiving cards or pass out Thanksgiving gifts. So I think that Thanksgiving is probably one of the most biblical-based holidays that we celebrate in America. Because being thankful is a major theme of Scripture. So for our study this morning, I want to look at Colossians 1, 9-14, because they focus on the subject of Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is not just a one day, a holiday that we celebrate. It should be an attitude of our lives. It should be something that characterizes us, that we are thankful. We are grateful people. It's what the Bible calls us to. So that's what we want to look at this morning. Colossians 1, 9 through 11 says, And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power, according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy. According to Scripture, the knowledge that we take in, is truly, if it's truly understood and it's taken into our life, it's supposed to control us. It is to shape our lives. It's to shape our walk, our conduct. That's the whole purpose of learning about the Word of God, to come to know our Father better and to adjust our lives that our lives are pleasing to Him. Paul prays for them to be filled with the knowledge of His will, Why? So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. So we're filled with the knowledge so we can walk in a manner worthy. And Paul elaborates on what it means to walk in a manner worthy of God with four participles. The first one being bearing fruit in verse 10. Now, the character of God is produced in the life of the one who has been born into the family and is now seeking to live as a disciple of Christ. And someone who's doing that will be bearing fruit. And by bearing fruit, he's talking about the principles set forth in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Thank you. That's the header. That's the characteristic. All the others are amplifying that. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. So we're going to walk in love. Now, the second participial phrase is that we are to be increasing in the knowledge of God. Again, that word knowledge comes into play here. There's to be growth 
in our knowledge of God. And we grow by spending time in the Word of God. That's the only way we're going to grow, people. The only way we're going to know who God is, what He wants for us, is as we spend time in the Word of God. And that's why I bug you so much about that and encourage you to try to read through the Bible every year. I got a call this week from one of our listeners who was telling me that his wife read through the Bible for the first time and he was just encouraged and you know she was encouraged and it's people it's the word of God we should know it and the only way we're going to know it is if we spend time in it all right so the Christian life is not a stagnant life it's to be growing there's growth there's development now, the third phrase is being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might It takes power beyond your own to walk in a manner worthy of God, to walk in a way that's pleasing to Him. And I know you all understand that. We can't do this in our strength. We're not able to live lives that are pleasing to God in our own strength. We just can't do it. We're not able to live lives that accomplish God's purpose in our own strength. We need to be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might. So Paul is praying that they will be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. When we're walking according to the strength that God provides, we're going to be able to endure trials. We're going to be able to endure difficulties that are going to come our way. He says, with joy. So there's endurance and there's patience, but it's not grudgingly, it's with joy. With joy is a literal prepositional phrase, and it can go either with what goes before it or what goes after. So it can be for all endurance and patience with joy, as the text has it laid out, or it can be with joy, giving thanks. Both are true biblically, but I think it's a unique quality of a believer to have endurance and patience with joy. In other words, there's actual joy in the heart and life of the person during the most intense and unpleasant trials because God is empowering them. You know, we see this fleshed out in Paul's life. Paul and Silas were at Philippi preaching the gospel, and because of that, they were arrested, they were beaten, and they were put in prison. Not for breaking the law, they were preaching the gospel. Keep that in mind, okay? Acts 16 says this, 23 and 24. And when they had afflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. All right, so they get beaten for preaching the gospel. You know, Christians today complain about things that happen in their life that usually are their own fault. But here, you you know, you figure, I'm doing God's will, I'm preaching the gospel, doing what you want, and everything should be right, and everything should be good. No, they're beaten because of it. And they're put in the inner prison, there's no windows, there's, you can't, it's pitch dark. And they're put in the stocks. These are not colonial stocks, okay? These stocks, the idea was you stretched you as far as possible to make you uncomfortable. So they're not in a great situation, all right? So what do they do in this situation? They cry out to God, God, why'd you let this happen to us? We're supposed to be your servants. Is that what happens? What happens? Okay, look it. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. 
Let me ask you something. Why at midnight? Anything, any significance about singing at midnight? Well, they're just being biblical. The psalm says, at midnight, I rise to praise you because of your righteous rules. So they're just being biblical. They're following the scripture. They're singing hymns of praise to God. They're showing that endurance and patience with joy in the midst of the trials. Now, notice also in 2 Corinthians 7, 4, Paul says, I am acting with great boldness toward you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I'm overflowing with joy. That's something you don't hear too often, right? In all the affliction I'm going through, I'm overflowing with joy. That's remarkable. You say, well, Paul was an apostle. Maybe that's just something unique about apostles, right? Well, if you look over at 2 Corinthians 8, Paul's talking about the churches in Macedonia. And he says this, In a severe trial or test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So they're they're in a severe trial, but they have an abundance of joy. You know, we know that the Apostle Paul was no stranger to affliction, okay? Every city he went into, he got to check out the jail because he got arrested and beat a whole lot of times. When he said they were having a great trial of affliction, you can believe it was intense. But they still had an abundance of joy. Look at Hebrews 10.34. This this verse bothers me. Okay? He says, For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property. Since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You know, there's some verses you just wish that wouldn't, that Bible would be better if that wasn't there, okay? I mean, this is like they are joyfully accepting the plundering of your property. Their earthly possessions were being taken because of their stand for Christ, and they accepted it with joy. Now, I can understand if it said they grudgingly accepted it, they miserably accepted it, or if it said they grabbed their AR 15s and said, You're not taking our property. But it says they joyfully accepted the plundering of the goods. How would we respond if we went home and found out that the government had taken our homes? Because we are practicing Christians. Oh, you're a Christian? We're going to confiscate your property. This is amazing, people. But this is the power of God, okay? And can you imagine the power of this testimony? All right? He says, endurance and patience with joy. Paul is praying that they'll be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might, so they'll have endurance and they'll have patience with joy. Believers, when we are joyfully patient and long-suffering, God is honored in our life. But this is only possible as we depend on His power. The, The dependent life is a joyful life. Now the fourth participle and quality that pleases the Lord that is giving thanks to the Father. And we want to focus on this this morning because while grammatically coordinate with the other three, giving thanks to the Father is really the crowning virtue of these four qualities. Giving thanks is the fourth product of a life that is growing in the knowledge of God and in spiritual wisdom and understanding. Thankfulness is one of the outstanding characteristics of a disciple of Christ. And let me say this. 
There is nothing so contradictory as an unthankful Christian. Think about that for a minute. Thankfulness is an important subject to the Apostle Paul and in the Word of God as a whole. He talks about it continually. Paul uses the concept over 40 times in his epistles, seven times just in Colossians. Thankfulness is very important to our lives and especially our lives in the home. Thankfulness enhances a marriage. It enhances any relationship. And this is true because a thankful heart produces something within that enables people to more effectively live together. Don't you like being around people who are just thankful, that appreciate things? As opposed to somebody who's never happy and always grumbling? In all of life, it makes a difference. And I think this will become evident as we study the nature and essence of thanksgiving. Christians should be the most thankful people in the world. So I'll say it again, there is nothing so contradictory as an unthankful Christian. Our lives should be full of praise full of thanksgiving, full of joy, because we have so many reasons to be full of thanksgiving, even in the midst of adversity. But because the world around us and the attitude of most and because of our own bent towards self-centeredness, we're prone to be very unthankful people. We really are. Thanksgiving is an expression of an inner recognition and acknowledgement of the grace of God in every area of our life. True thankfulness is something that proceeds out of the inner person, from the heart through the lips. If the heart is evil, if it's filled with greed and preoccupation with the details of life, with problems such as unresolved feelings of anger or resentment, then thankfulness is near impossible. Hebrews 13, 15, he says, Through Him, let us continually offer up the sacrifice of praise to God, That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. The words offer here and the word sacrifice are both priestly terms of worship. And this shows us that true thanksgiving is a priestly response. It's an an area of worship. It's a priestly sacrifice. It is an act of worship when we are thankful to the Lord. A sacrifice of praise is explained by the words, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Thanksgiving is an act of adoration and praise that calls attention to the grace of God. Note the relationship in Psalm 100 between the command to give thanks and the reason. He says, a psalm for giving thanks. Make a joyful noise to Yahweh, all the earth. Serve Yahweh with gladness. Come into His presence with singing Know that Yahweh, He is God. It is He who made us, and we are His. We are His people, the sheep of His pasture. Enter His gates with thanksgiving and His courts with praise. Give thanks to Him. Bless His name. Why? For Yahweh is good. His steadfast love endures forever, and His faithfulness to all generations. We're to give thanks because He's good. Thanksgiving is a matter of response to the facts of Revelation. As we learn who He is, as we understand that, we are thankful. William Law, in his book, Serious Call to a Devout and Holy Life, writes this. 
Would you know who is the greatest saint in the world? It is not he who prays most or fasts most. It is not he who gives most alms or is most eminent for temperance, chastity, or justice. But it is he who is always thankful to God. Who wills everything that God willeth. Who receives everything as an instance of God's goodness and has a heart always ready to praise God for it. He is always thankful to God. Alright, so here's the question. How do we grow in thankfulness? How do we grow? Alright, I don't know if you're going to like this first one or not, but here's how it is. It's Bible study. It's awareness of the Bible. It's understanding the Bible. Let me say this. Thanksgiving, I believe, is motivated by Bible doctrine. Because the more you understand the Bible and who God is, the more you realize what you have in Christ, the more thankful you're going to be. Paul put it this way in Colossians 3, 16 and 17. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's where it starts. The Word becomes at home in your life. So, you know, someone pokes you and a Bible verse comes out, okay? You're just oozing with the Scripture, okay? I mean, in, at night when you're dreaming, the Bible should be coming in those dreams and guiding you even in your dreams, all right? He says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you. Take up residence in your life richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms. Here's the result of the Word of God dwelling in you. You sing psalms, hymns with spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. See, thankfulness is a result of the Word of Christ dwelling in you richly. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Yeshua, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. See, as you come to know God through the Word, you can always have a thankful heart. That was Paul. No matter what the situation was, he was fine with it because he knew God in an intimate way. So how do we grow in thankfulness? It comes through knowing the Word of God which teaches us about ourself and teaches us about God and teaches us what God has done for us. Secondly, and this one is something we all have to work on, count your blessings. Now that might sound basic, that might sound simple, but listen, let me tell you how much it helps when you focus on what you have. You know, if you want to grow in gratitude, count the blessings that you have. I really think that's good counsel. But sometimes we have to recognize them first. We don't even know what we have. A man, he owned a small estate and he wanted to sell it. So he got a hold of a real estate agent and he asked the agent to write up an advertisement on the home describing the house and the land. When the ad was ready, the agent took it over to him and he read it to him. And he got done reading. The guy said, read that again. And so he read it again. And he goes, I don't think I want to sell off after all. He goes, I've been looking for a place like that all my life. You know, sometimes we just don't realize what we have. Sometimes until it's gone. Count your blessings. Start by asking God to open your eyes so you can see the blessings that you have. Begin by recognizing all you have in Christ. That'll change your entire perspective and enable you to praise God for what you have. You know, consumer culture would have us feel constantly unsatisfied. That is the whole purpose of advertising. To make you unsatisfied with what you have so you'll want what they're selling. That's the whole purpose. All right? 
In response, we should practice gratitude as a kind of spiritual discipline. In difficult times or times of temptation due to dissatisfaction, we should simply list basic things that we have enjoyed that day or, or through our life. You know, I when I get in bed at night, I like to just lay there and thank the Lord. You know, I'm thankful that first of all, I'm I, I'm in a shelter. Okay, if it's pouring down rain, I'm dry. I'm in a nice, comfortable bed with clean sheets because my wife is always on top of that stuff. All right, thank you, honey. Nice, clean sheets, comfortable laying there. I have a bathroom 20 feet from me if I need it. It's got hot and cold running water. Right outside my bedroom, there's a box on the wall that controls the temperature. I can make it cool or hot in that house. If I go downstairs, i got a refrigerator that's got a bunch of food in it. i got another one in the garage that has more food in it. I have a pantry. That's, I, I can just go on and on and on with what I have. A hot shower. Man, I love taking a hot shower. It's like it washes away all your problems, you know? It's just, you know, when I thought Y2K was coming, one of the first things I got was a solar shower. Because like I said, to me, a shower is is just a cleansing thing, not only physically, but, you know, we have to start realizing what we have. I'll tell you, one of the things I do every day is I thank God for my wife. I do. Because I'm thankful for her. I, I realize what a blessing she is in my life. I thank Him for so many things that He has given me. You know, I get up in the morning and I have a cup of coffee and it's I like it, you know. It's electricity that, you know, I could do it without. I'd figure out a way, believe me. But um, we just have to learn what we have and to start being thankful for them. Because <clears throat> people, listen, if you're an American Christian... <laughs> You got a lot to be thankful for. All right, we are blessed. We have so much here. All right, I believe that Paul teaches us that thanksgiving is the way we should pray. We should always start our prayer life with thanksgiving, and I do that because let me show you this. So Philippians four six, Paul says, "Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer." And supplication with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. All right? With thanksgiving, he says. That's the Greek meta eucharistia. Now, meta and the genitive means with, as they have it translated here. But this is actually meta and the accusative, and it never means with, it means after. After thanksgiving. So what Paul is saying is here, after Thanksgiving, then make your requests known to God. You know, instead of coming to God with your difficulties and your complaints and your questions and your dissatisfaction and your list of gimme, 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 start with Thanksgiving. Why? Because then your heart will be right and you're like, mm, okay, God, never mind, I got, I got so much already. That's the way to start a prayer life, thanking God for what you have. It makes a huge difference. And that's why Paul says, and I think it's important that we understand, it's not with, it's after Thanksgiving. Being thankful requires a proper comprehension of the reasons we should be thankful. Thankfulness can't occur in a vacuum of ignorance. So Paul doesn't just tell his readers to be thankful. He points them to four awesome blessings that they possess through the mighty act of the Father that He has accomplished through the Son. And these four objects of thanksgiving are only a partial list of the blessing that God has given us in Christ. But these four give us, I think, a great illustration of what God has done in the person of His Son and what all believers possess in Christ. Through Christ, the Father has given us these four things. 
He's qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints. This inheritance is the new covenant. It's the new heavens and earth. It is dwelling with the Father. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness. He has transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And He has redeemed us, providing forgiveness of sins. God's saving act on the behalf of mankind is spoken of here in the terms of the exodus of the children of Israel from the land of Egypt into the promised land of Canaan. Yeshua dying as a fulfillment of the Passover is a necessary image of a new exodus. A fulfillment of that picture of God's deliverance of all men and women by the blood of a better and more lasting sacrifice in Yeshua. So the reader can follow Paul's thought of being considered acceptable to receive the inheritance of all God's people and of being brought out of the former place of residence into the new by receiving redemption from the house of bondage. Each of these are paralleled in the original Exodus and of God's great work in taking people out of slavery into freedom of serving the one and true God. Now, just in passing, I want you to note how this entire passage... If you read this passage in Colossians and then go over and look what Paul has to say here to King Agrippa in Acts 26-17. He says, Delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's saying the same thing that Paul's saying here in Colossians. Why is it that we're to be thankful to God? Well, He has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the sons in light. Qualified is the Greek word hekanao, which means to make sufficient, to qualify, to enable. But it doesn't mean, listen, to make deserving. The blessings believers have in Christ are totally by the amazing grace and power of God. They're not deserving. Only God, the Almighty Himself, is the sufficient one who has the resources needed to qualify sinful man for an eternal relationship with Himself. Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown in their commentary on Colossians write this, which He hath made us meet. The Greek who made us meet not is making us meet by progressive growth in holiness, but once for all made us meet It is not primarily the Spirit's work that is meant here, as the text is often used, but the Father's work in putting us by adoption once for all into a new standing, namely that of children. So what exactly are we qualified for? Well, we are qualified to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The term share here is the noun meros, and it means a part or a share or a portion that which has been divided or apportioned. And then the word in the inheritance point us to to what has been divided out to the saints, what has been given to us. Inheritance is the Greek word kleros, which literally means a lot, that which is cast or drawn or obtained by casting lots. Look what Hebrews 9.15 says, Therefore, He is the meteor of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promise eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. So notice that what is called here 
It is the called who receive the promise of the internal inheritance. The called receive that. And promise is a key word in Hebrews and is really inseparably related to the author's concept of inheritance. Rest equals inheritance. And Hebrews constantly uses the idea of inheritance of something yet unrealized. That's to the first century believers. What is the promise inheritance? Well, it's the new covenant. It's the new Jerusalem. It's the inheritance of the land of the old covenant was temporary, but it was a type, it was a picture of the believer's inheritance in the new age. So the blessing which flows from the death of Christ is an eternal inheritance. People, what we have received in Christ, we will always have. It'll always be ours. It's an eternal inheritance. And he says it's the inheritance of the saints in light. Light here refers to God. We have this inheritance in God. 1 John 1.5 says, This is the message we have heard from Him, proclaiming to you, God is light, in Him is no darkness. 1 Timothy 6.16 Who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, who no one has ever seen or can see, to Him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. Yeshua's public ministry in, in John, the book of John, ended in chapter 12. And in chapter 13, he begins with Yeshua's Last Supper, and he's with his disciples. And in verse 34 of 12, Yeshua speaks of his coming crucifixion. And the people are in confusion. They want to know how the Son of Man can be lifted up. And he says this to them in 12, 35, and 36. So Yeshua said to them, The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest the darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of the light. When Yeshua has said these things, he departed and hid himself. Now he says, the light is among you for a little while. That's a reference to Himself, the fact that He is God. He is the one who reveals perfectly the triune God to us. So we have the inheritance in the light because we're sons of light. He's qualified us by salvation that He has provided. Believers, listen. We are eternally fit for heaven at the moment of our salvation. We are eternally, as eternally fit for heaven as we ever will be. No amount of spirituality, no amount of self-discipline will make us any more fit for heaven. Fitness for heaven depends on the finished work of Christ. Not on our work for Christ. Because of the incomparable work of Christ on the cross, the believing sinner stands perfect in the sight of God. In Ephesians 1.6 He says, so that we would bring Him praise commensurate with the glory of the grace He gave us through the Beloved One. Believers, we are in the Beloved One. We share union with Him. Everything He is and has, we are and have. And God puts into the believer the split second He comes to know Christ, His own righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake He made Him to, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. We cannot add or subtract from our exalted, eternal, unalterable position in Christ. This is true of every believer, no matter his quality of life. 
We share all God is and has. So we are to be thankful, number one, because God has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He's given us an eternal inheritance in heaven with Himself forever. Secondly, He says He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His Son. Now the words delivered and transferred here relate to the themes of the Tanakh. Delivered is from the Greek word ruomai, and is an heiress, and it suggests that which is accomplished event. We've been delivered at a point in the past. That's our conversion. This deliverance is absolutely finished. There's no progress in this rescue. It's an event. The Greek word carries the idea of rescue. This is a spiritual rescue, which is really the antitype of the deliverance of Israel from Egypt. Domain here is the Greek word exousia, means authority, power, ruling. Darkness in Scripture is symbolic of ignorance and falsehood and delusion and sin and Satan. Here, darkness is seen as a kingdom which has power over us. Now, this exact expression, domain of darkness, is used another time in the New Testament. It's used in Luke chapter 22. And this is when Yeshua was arrested in the garden. He challenged those who came out to arrest him that night and asked, Why would you come out with swords and clubs? You know, I've been around, I've been with you all this time. Why, why are you coming like this to arrest me? Luke twenty two fifty three says, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you didn't lay hands on me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. They were acting on the power of darkness as do all who oppose Christ. Believers, we have been, past tense, delivered from the power of darkness. You know, I don't think that most believers understand this. The misunderstanding of our day is expressed by one commentator who writing on this Colossians 1.13 says this, Satan's authority over us has been broken. But note that we have not been removed from the realm of darkness. Unquote. That's not true. The Bible says the opposite. We have been transferred into the kingdom of the Son. He's been transferred into the kingdom of His beloved Son. At the time of the writing of Colossians, Satan was defeated but not destroyed. But his destruction was soon to follow. This same commentator goes on to say, Satan is still the ruler of this world. He is still the God of this world, as Paul called him in 2 Corinthians 4.4. The whole world still lies in the power of the evil one. Although we are no longer under his authority, we have not yet been removed from his realm. Is Satan the God of this world? Well, in 2 Corinthians 4.4, Paul says this, In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Is Satan the God of this world? Well, here's the problem here. we got a bad translation. What is the word world there? It's I own in the Greek. It should be translated age. He's the God of this age. Satan was the God of the old covenant age. The age that ended in AD 70, and so did he. Now, notice what Paul told the Roman believers. He said, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Yeshua the Christ be with you. The KJV here uses the word bruise. He will bruise instead of crush. But the Greek word used here is sumtribo, and it means to crush completely, to shatter. Now, when was Satan crushed completely? Well, Paul said it would be soon. And he's writing to the Roman Christians living in the first century, and he said, it's going to happen soon. So remember audience relevance. 
You think the believers at Rome could have conceived of 2,000 plus years as soon? If it was to be some 2,000 plus years, how could he crush him under their feet? The people who this was written to don't have any feet anymore. Okay, they're dust. Most believers, and, and this is a significant thing in understanding Scripture, people. Most believers don't understand that we live in a different age than Paul and the recipients of the New Testament lived in. Fundamental to understanding Scripture. They lived in what the Bible calls the last days. And most Christians today still think we're living in the last days. But they were living in the last days of the Old Covenant. Those last days began at Pentecost. And most people will agree, okay, the last days began at Pentecost. But they think we're still in them. So we've been in the last days for over 2,000 years. Up to that point, all of Judaism had only been about 1,600 years. So how are the last days way longer than any days? Last days would be the end of it, right? So the last days began at Pentecost, but they ended at eighty seventy, when the Jewish temple was destroyed. And we now, you and I, live in what the Bible calls the age to come. I know, you're reading your Bible, it says the age to come. Well, it's not written to you, it's written to them, and that age to come has come. Alright? This is a 40-year period from Pentecost to Holocaust. It was a time of transition from the Old Covenant to the New Covenant. In this transition period, the New Covenant had been inaugurated, but not consummated. But we now live in the fully consummated New Covenant age. And we have to understand that if we're going to understand Scripture, because we read things that sound future. Well, they were future to the people they were written to. But when were they to be accomplished? Look at what the New Testament says that Christ accomplished in Hebrews 2.14. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise took part of the same things, that through death He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. So one of the aspects of Christ's earthly mission was to destroy the devil. Now, the Greek word here for destroy is katargeo, and it means to render idle, literally or figuratively, to abolish, to destroy, to do away with. And we have to ask, was Christ a failure in this mission? See, most Christians act like he was a failure because they're still all worried about the devil. I think we kind of want him around so we got someone to blame for our sin. You know, people say, well, the devil made me do that. Really? That, that gets you off the hook? 1 John 3 8. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Now, again, the Greek word for destroy here is luo, to loosen to break up, destroy, dissolve, to put off. Christ is said to have destroyed the devil in his works. And we just have to ask, do you believe the Bible? That was his mission. He says, he says the reason the Son of God appeared, the reason he came, was to destroy the works of the devil. What were the works of the devil? The works of the devil were to separate man from God. He destroyed that. So we're to be thankful to God because he has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness, and He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. Colossians 1.13 He transferred us to that kingdom. Transferred us from the Greek word methistemi that carries the idea 
in a very special significance, okay? They, Trance Barclay writes this. In the ancient world, when one empire won a victory over another, it was the custom to take the population of the defeated country and transfer it, lock, stock, and barrel, to the conqueror's lands. Thus the people of the northern kingdom were taken away to Assyria, and the people of the southern kingdom were taken away to Babylon. So Paul says that God has transferred the Christian to his own kingdom. That was not only a transference, but a rescue. So such a transference means that God's rule and personal care provision for our life. He moved us into His kingdom, where He is ruling and reigning. So we're to be thankful because God has transferred us into that kingdom and He has also redeemed us, providing the forgiveness of sins. In whom, he says, and this points the readers into the sphere in which redemption occurs, we might render it in union with whom, or by whom we have redemption. Either way, the text stresses that it is through the Lord Yeshua that the believer's relationship to Him that this deliverance occurs. It's because of Christ, in whom, he says, we have redemption. The word redemption means deliverance at a cost, or release by payment of a price. Embedded in the word redemption, in the original language, the word is apolutrosis, is a little word lutron. Lutron is ransom. In other words, the idea of redemption is deliverance or release by payment of a ransom. This concept is always in view when the word redemption is used in passages in the, in the Tanakh. And it's clear that redemption is based on some great expenditure of God. The price God paid is always in view. The New Testament term for redemption is always, they have in mind, a price paid. In redemption, someone's release, someone's deliverance is accomplished at the cost of a ransom payment. What is that ransom payment? Mark 10.45 For even the Son of Man came not to be saved, served, but to serve and to give His life a ransom for sin. The answer is that the life of the Son of God, that's the ransom. That's the redemption paid. That's, that's what salvation is all about, people. We messed up. We sinned. We sep- we, therefore, we're separated from God. And God is holy, and He's just, and He's righteous, and He couldn't just say, I'm just going to forgive you. Come on into heaven. I like you. Come on. I'll let you in. No, that would be unjust. Our country is full of injustice. It it should make us sick. God is not that way. God is just. So somebody had to pay for your sin. And Christ did. And I say this a lot, but you've got to understand it. When you get to heaven, you'll deserve to be there. Because Christ paid your ransom price in full. You don't have to sneak in and be ashamed. I'm a sinner. I shouldn't be. No, no. I'm as righteous as Christ. I have His righteousness. See, if you don't have Christ's righteousness, you're not getting in. That's the only righteousness God accepts. And that's what Paul means when he says the redemption which is in Christ Yeshua. Because Yeshua is the ransom. He gave His life so there could be a release, a deliverance. So here's the foundation of our justification. Christ gave His life as a ransom for many. He paid the price for our release from sin and guilt and condemnation. That is why God now, as a gift of His grace, justifies the ungodly. 
Everything is owing to the death of Christ. This is why you can't pay for it. You can't work for it. It's all of God. The basis of our justification is not in ourselves or anything that we do. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Yeshua. Here and in Ephesians 1.7, after the word redemption, Paul adds this, the forgiveness of sins. This is appositional to the term redemption. It tells us what redemption means in terms of its result for the believer. It means their forgiveness. Forgiveness here is aphesis, which means release as from captivity or pardon, cancellation of an obligation, uh, pardon of punishment or guilt. Forgiveness of sins. We read a statement like that in verse 14. It says that we have forgiveness of sins, but do you really know what it means to be forgiven and cleansed? I don't think most people realize that God forgives sins once for all. All our sins. Past sins. Present sins. Future sins. Every sin. The slate is wiped clean. Matter of fact, the slate is gone. Alright, we are in Christ. We are righteous. Every sin that you've ever committed, no matter how vile, no matter how ugly, is forgiven. How great is our God. That's how wonderful His salvation is. We are people who have much to thank God for. We deserve eternal judgment because of our sin. But God stepped in and paid the ransom price. Here in Colossians, Paul is giving us a brief glimpse of just some of the wonderful accomplishments of what the Father has done for us in Christ. Things that we're to be thankful for God for. Because He's qualified us to share in the inheritance. He's delivered us from the domain of darkness. He's transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. And He's redeemed us, providing a forgiveness of sins. This should cause us to always be thankful. And believer, I'm convinced that the greatest singular act of personal worship that you can render to God is to have a thankful heart. Everything we have comes from God's hand. And to be thankful is to be worshiping. And I think you can do a lot of things in your worship of God, but I think one of the greatest acts is to just be a thankful person for what He has given, for what He has provided. Thanksgiving ultimately recognizes God as the source of everything. God created us, and we're to be thankful. And Thanksgiving promotes contentment about our possessions about our position, about our providence, by focusing our thoughts on the blessings that God has already given to us. Like I said, if you're an American and a Christian, you should be one thankful person. Okay, we have so much in this country. We've been blessed so much. And as a Christian... In Christ, we see Christians in other countries who have nothing of what we have, have great persecution, and yet they're still thankful. They're grateful people. It's about our relationship to God. And the more we know Him through the Word of God, the more thankful we'll be. So maybe if you're not thankful, you need to spend more time in the Word of God, more time counting your blessings. Because I really believe the greatest singular act of personal worship that you can render to God is to have a thankful heart. So let's be worshiping people. Let's pray. 
Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thankful, I'm thankful, Lord, for the reminder of just who we are in you, of what you have done for us. Lord, of what we deserve and what you have by grace given to us. It's hard to comprehend, Father. I thank you for your marvelous grace to us. May we realize who we are in you. And may we rejoice in that. May we walk in it. May we be thankful people, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for this time today that we had to spend in the Word of God. I pray that it will have its effect on our lives. Amen.